This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we're breaking down Bitwise. Founded in 2017, Bitwise is known for managing the world's largest crypto index funds with over $1.2 billion in assets under management. In this breakdown, we cover the value proposition of Bitwise, how the business compares to traditional asset managers, and why there is a lack of competition today for crypto indexing. To help me break down Bitwise, I'm joined by co-founder Hunter Horsley. Hunter shares his journey with the business, key lessons launching a business within the crypto space, and some interesting data points around investor adoption of crypto. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of Bitwise. So Hunter, when we last were together in person, we're in the little library of a club that I use in New York City, and it was 2017 or something. You're probably managing 25 or $50 million today. It's a much bigger number than that. And I think you've become sort of the default in an interesting slice of the crypto ecosystem. Maybe you can begin by just describing the history of the business and what exactly it is you do. Because I think a lot of those out there listening, mostly professional investors as an audience, will be really interested in, in this take on this emerging ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Patrick, I listened to the show, so I feel like I've spoken with you since then. But of course, it's great to actually be back with you live. So you're right. Last time we spoke back in 2017, things were much smaller. Crypto was much newer. A lot less people were engaging with it. Fast forward to today, we're the largest cryptocurrency index fund manager. We manage about $1.5 in assets, so that's up since then. We're best known for our flagship fund, the Bitwise 10 Crypto Index Fund. That's like an S&P 500 for crypto that covers Bitcoin, Ethereum, some of the DeFi assets, Ethereum competitors, et cetera. And we have a suite of products today. We have a DeFi Index Fund. There's a Bitwise Crypto Industry Innovators ETF, ticker BITQ that holds crypto stocks. And zooming out, the role that we play in the crypto space, which is much bigger than us and has grown from you know maybe 500 billion when we started to over $2 trillion today, which is wild to say out loud, in this rapidly changing and growing ecosystem, there are some investors who want to do things themselves. They want to pick specific coins. They're excited about, say, Solana versus Ethereum. And they want to manage that portfolio. They may want to trade around events. And then there are other investors who view it more like they view emerging markets or high-yield bonds, which is they're going to decide if they want exposure, and then they want it to fit into their investing activities alongside everything else. So they can look at the taxes through the same lens, they can plan around liquidity through the same lens, they can monitor it the same way. And so we think about Bitwise's role as looking at all the developments in the space and then taking the ones that are mature enough and bringing access to those financial advisors and traditional investors who might want to participate in the interesting things happening. Say a bit about the literal details for how this stuff is structured. So rather than buy on exchange, are these funds, you already mentioned the ETF, we can leave that one aside. I'm more interested in the coin one specifically. 
Is it like an LP structure? Is it some sort of other commingled structure? We have a few different structures today and we're structure agnostic. So today we have private funds. Those are accredited investor only. We structure them as open-ended vehicles. And so there's a version of the Bitwise 10 that's a private only fund. The DeFi, Bitwise DeFi index fund is private only. We have private only funds for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Uniswap, a very large DeFi asset, Aave. And actually just today, Patrick, we announced a Bitwise 10 X Bitcoin fund. So for people who want to dial their Bitcoin exposure themselves and then want to use the product complete exposure to crypto. And those are all in a private fund structure. It's a private placement. It's a credit investor only, and the structure is open-ended. So that's one part of the suite. There's a BITQ, which is a 40-act ETF, which we touched on. Then there's this sort of novel crypto structure, which is much like a closed-end publicly traded trust, which BITW falls into. And that has a secondary market, trades the ticker BITW, as mentioned, and is not an ETF, but has a secondary market for its shares. Maybe you could just teach us a little bit about the evolution of what I'll call traditional finance or Main Street investor interest in this stuff and why something like this needs to exist relative to just someone using Coinbase, for example. Why this kind of fund-oriented structure, closed-end, private-open, what was the problem that Bitwise was originally solving and continues to solve relative to just buying this stuff directly through an exchange? A lot of people want it to fit in to their existing investment framework, investment environment, where they're comfortable buying a security and they like to do that. And then they'd like to have the custody of the digital assets, the trading, the taxes, the administration, the rebalancing, all handled by someone else, by a professional who's looking at it 24-7. So the index funds and our other products deliver on that. And by having it in the format of a security, there's a compatibility with the custodians they're using or the way they provide statements or the back office that approves investments or that maybe trades and rebalances investments. We think of ourselves as building a bridge to where many investors already sit and handle the rest of their investing lives and to package up the assets in crypto space into that format. If you had to outline the governing investment philosophy how would you describe it? You say first crypto index firm. So I think index, I think like complete coverage and very low cost. Does that carry over from the equity world? I would say it's similar, but not exactly the same. So let's take the Bitwise 10 crypto index fund, for example, and dig into the detail here a little bit. The Bitwise 10 has a formal rule set, a formal methodology. You can review it. And in that way, just like an equities index, but the rules in the rule set are different. Many of the things you would take for granted in a public equities index, you can't take for granted in crypto. So we have rules around, can an asset be held by a regulated third-party insured custodian? That's not something that you think much about when you think about designing a US large cap or domestic equities index. We look at trade volumes. Is there sufficient trade volume to believe the liquidity will be there and the price discovery is there? We look at where are things trading? So in crypto land, there are a variety of different trading venues, which for many investors are all unfamiliar to people, but some of them are onshore and accessible to US investors, and some of them are offshore. So if you have an asset that may seem like it has a giant market cap, but all the volume is trading in Korea, that is not as practical for an investment professional or traditional investor to access. So we look at all of those things behind the hood and a number of others. To your question of how does it compare to a traditional index, 
it's the same in that we have a set of rules, but the rules that you want to have are different. And that's where we think we can add a lot of value by being a specialist in the crypto space that spends all day, every day, thinking about the nuances of the space, responding to developments because the space is changing, that has developers on staff who can look at things through the lens of the underlying software and so forth. I will say it's market cap weighted today. So that is also a familiar element of the index structure. How about price? What do you typically charge investors? How do you see that in index investing? The price curve was this idea of like, as you achieve scale, you share a lot of that scale benefit with the customer and lower prices. Is that the same concept here? I would say yes and no. I think that many investors view the prices in crypto as high and view the prices of our products as higher. So to give you detail and specifics, our prices range from 85 basis points to 250 basis points, which compared to SPY is quite a bit higher. The way that we think about it is we want to have the budget to go work with the best service providers. We want to be the best heart surgeon, not the cheapest heart surgeon. And in crypto, take our Bitwise 10, for example, it's up 400% over the last 12 months. So I think for many investors who are deciding, do I want to have an allocation of crypto? They're going to decide whether or not that makes sense for them. And when they say, okay, this makes sense, they want to do it in a way where they feel there aren't going to be any negative surprises. There aren't going to be any blowups. I want to know that I'm working with professional counterparties that are going to be around for a long time. And so we think about, again, delivering on best-in-class service, counterparties, research, relationships, et cetera, versus trying to sort of squeeze out a few extra basis points here or there to get cheaper. I think that there's a role for that, but in crypto, I just don't authentically believe that it's as important because of the risk-return relationship of the space. Maybe you could walk us through the story of a dollar invested. So you mentioned these other partnerships that are kind of a key advantage that you bring to the table. Let's say I give you a dollar and I want to buy the Bitwise 10. Talk me through how that dollar goes from my pocket. First of all, where does it go and how does it get there? What are the key steps in the chain, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take one of our private funds as an example and Bitwise 10 private fund. We can look at that. And that's different than if you're trading the public shares that trade in the secondary market through a brokerage account. So to track the flows through private fund, you fill out a subscription document. We take you through KYC, AML, accreditation checks. You're approved to make the investment. You then wire the funds to the banking partner of the Bitwise 10 fund. That's Silvergate Bank in most cases. So the funds flow into the Silvergate account. And then on subscription days at 4 p.m. Eastern, we have our cutoff. And then we can start to execute and trade into the portfolio. We have relationships with the large OTC trading desks, Jane Street, Susquehanna, Cumberland, Genesis, you name it. Our traders go out and try to find the best prices. They're almost always with the OTC desks as opposed to what's available on the lit spot exchanges like Coinbase Pro. We execute there and then there's settlement. We send the cash. They send the digital assets to the wallet addresses of our custodian. We work with a few different custodians. We work with Coinbase institutional, we work with Anchorage Digital Bank, and we work with Fidelity Digital Assets. And then they sit in cold storage. The assets then sit in cold storage there, unless we have a rebalance, which we do monthly, or if we are feeling a redemption that can't be crossed with new cash. It's a relatively simple portfolio management undertaking, which I think for some investors also, Patrick, makes the operation of due diligence a little bit easier. There's a lot of discussion in crypto about the investment due diligence, What do we think about underwriting this risk? Or what do we think about this corner of the crypto universe? And then it gets handed off to the ODD team. And they're like, wait a minute, who is this counterparty? Or 
who is on the other side of this counterparty. So I think that there's some elegance in the simplicity there as well. Say a bit more about one of the aspects of that, which stands out as interesting, which is the OTC thing. So to hear Susquehanna maybe getting more of your trading activity than Coinbase Pro or something is interesting. Just talk us through what's going on there. Why is that the case? Just flesh out that ecosystem a little bit more. Everyone is familiar with Coinbase and Gemini and the consumer-facing brokerages and the professional-grade exchanges like Kraken as well. I think people are a little bit less familiar, maybe some of your audience are, but a little bit less familiar with the ecosystem of OTC desks, which is very vibrant, large, and where billions of dollars clear daily. Some of the big players there are Cumberland, which is a part of DRW. Genesis Capital is a big player. There's a whole host of them. Coinbase is an OTC desk. BlockFi is an OTC desk. Susquehanna, Jane Street, Jump. And I'm sure that I'm egregiously forgetting even more. So when we go out to find prices for execution, we'll get bids from, from the different desks and they have a range. Why do they have a range? Sometimes they're trying to clear some inventory they just acquired from a very large holder or a forced seller. Sometimes they're averaging out of a position, averaging into a position and want to hit a timestamp on their execution. Sometimes they're just trying to build their book of business and they're trying to win bids. And so they're seeking to be more competitive with their offerings. There's a variety of idiosyncratic reasons across these desks, but if you have relationships with enough of them, it comes together such that you're usually finding the best price there. Maybe you could say a bit more too about cold storage and custody in crypto. So if you go back to the origins, the idea was self-custody, not your keys, not your coins, as the phrase used to go. I'm curious if you know what percent of crypto assets are third-party custodied versus self-custodied or just even the ballpark would be super interesting, but also just to hear how you think about custody and security, given that's a unique aspect of this asset class. I'd be fascinated to know that stat as well. I guess that it's about a third self-custodied or maybe a half self-custodied, and then the bulk of it is sitting on brokerages and then maybe 10% in custodians. Crypto is a space that I think is defined by the fact that you have the choice between having your assets with a third party who can provide certain benefits and holding those assets yourself as a bearer instrument. And I think it'll always be the case that there are certain people who choose to do one or the other for a variety of reasons. And that's not that dissimilar from cash and gold and other things that people are very familiar with. The landscape of third-party regulated custodians has leapt forward since 2017. In 2017, there were maybe two offerings on the market. I think Kingdom Trust and I think Gemini had an offering for Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum. You fast forward to today, Coinbase Institutional is the largest. Fidelity has an offering. It's sort of crazy to imagine if you think back to when we were sitting in the club chatting that Fidelity would be offering to hold your Bitcoin for you. There's BitGo, there's Anchorage, the first OCC chartered bank. There's NIDIG, there's Prime Trust. There's a whole host today. And most of them today also have trust charters, regulatory oversight, insurance policies, et cetera. So that has gotten much more vibrant. And I also think that is going to continue to evolve. You've probably heard of Komenu, the Nomura joint venture, bringing a custody offering. And I think we'll see more and more there. And as those things roll out, we evaluate providers. And that's part of the value that we bring to the funds as well. I'm curious, this is almost a personal question too, but also I guess maybe the stance of Bitwise writ larger, how you think about value accrual in the top 10 area. 
even more interesting, the X Bitcoin area. And just looking at that fact sheet before the call, it's still like 70% ETH or something. So it's dominated by Ethereum, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. And then you started to names like Cardano and Solana and Chainlink and Uniswap and Polygon and Stellar, probably things that most listening aren't familiar with the projects. So how much time do you and your team spend deep in these projects themselves? And recognizing that index funds means you kind of own it regardless. If it's big, you own it. But how do you think about what's exciting or what's interesting from an investment opportunity standpoint? Yeah, we spend time looking at each asset. We have to evaluate each asset before it can go into our funds. Our DeFi fund is a much earlier stage set of assets where they range from, I think, probably 800 million to 10 or 12 billion in market cap, whereas the Bitwise 10 funds probably range from 5 billion to obviously 900 with Bitcoin or thereabouts. And we look at things like the market structure, their liquidity. In the case of DeFi, we'll look at their vulnerability to exploits. We'll look at the token distribution. We'll look at whether or not the development team is anonymous or whether the reputations are known. So we're trying to do the diligence that our customer would expect and want to be done on an investment that they were going to make and to avoid some of the potholes in the crypto space that are not obvious if you just pull up a list of the top 10 on coin market cap. And in fact, if you pull up a list of the top 10 on coin market cap, it's a pretty different list. And the Bitwise 10, certainly it includes Bitcoin and Ethereum. As to the topic of what's most interesting, at the highest level, crypto has transformed to a from a mostly Bitcoin story. Even in the beginning of 2017, Bitcoin was about 80% of the market by market cap. Today, crypto has not only grown to be larger than $2 trillion, but Bitcoin is less than 50%, which means that there's over a trillion dollars of other things happening. So just at the highest level, I'd say, It's been incredibly exciting to see the space develop. We could talk about a few sectors of it that we think are interesting. I think that DeFi is interesting. We said we felt that got mature enough that in Q1 of this year, we were able to launch a product and that's been popular. We manage a few hundred million dollars of DeFi today. I think that DAOs are sort of in the early moments. NFTs are in the early moments. You also have, of course, the Ethereum competitors, so to speak. And I almost think of those as operating systems. If you think of Ethereum as Windows, and you might say, well, why do we need Mac? Or why do we need Palm OS? Or why do we need Android? You name it. And there are arguments. You know, a lot of people have a lot of polarized different perspectives on can't we just stick with Windows? But that category in of itself, people call it smart contracting or layer one or Ethereum competitors. I think that in and of itself, the base layer infrastructure is very interesting. And all of this is developing very quickly. So if we think about your business as an asset manager, which is what it is, and asset management businesses can be wonderful businesses, and they're also quite simple, right? So you have investment strategies, you take in assets, you charge an asset-based fee, and that's your revenue. You talked a little bit about the partners that probably make up your expenses, but just in trying to understand your business, walk us through that a little bit more. Do you think deliberately about margin structure? Do you care? You're a venture-backed business. You're still young, relatively speaking. And I'm just curious how you think about managing the business below the top line and what that might look like and whether or not it's very similar to or very different from other asset managers. So far, it's pretty similar to other asset managers. It's relatively high gross margin. And then we spend materially on operating expenses. And today we're profitable. We announced the Series B in May and shared some color on that. But at the same time, we have a purpose, which is we see this evolving new novel alternative asset class. It almost feels wrong to call it alternatives. And we want to bring those opportunities to traditional investors so that any investor who wants to access them can. 
And that's the goal. The goal is not to hit a certain margin structure or to create a certain type of business. We found ourselves today providing crypto index funds is the primary thing that we do, but we think of our role as more general. Some of the value that we provide beyond just managing the portfolios, but in providing relationships where people can understand what's going on, have somebody to call, have somebody to email, have a monthly letter from our CIO, you know, can, can get a teaching if they like it and those types of things. You mentioned wholesaling, a term familiar to anyone in asset management. Who are your customers? Like, are you mostly facing wealth intermediaries or institutional intermediaries? Are you directly dealing with wealthy individuals? Maybe it's both. And if so, kind of in what general mix? What is your sales marketing go-to-market strategy? We have a few audiences today. We think of them as traditional investors. Our core audience is financial advisors. So to put some color around that, today we serve over 250 RIAs. Over the summer, the Bitwise 10 Crypto Next Fund became available on the LPL platform, where there are 17,000 advisors managing, I believe it's over 4 million accounts and a trillion in assets. We spend a lot of time on that audience and we have regional relationship managers all over the country. We do hundreds of calls and meetings and teach-ins, and we answer questions by email when advisors get them. And we think of our role as, again, not only providing access through the products, but providing a relationship that's going to give the advisor confidence to navigate the tumult of the space over the coming five years. In some ways, once you wrap your head around what crypto is and what crypto isn't, it's not rocket science. You put 50 basis points in or 500 basis points in. But I think for many people, the next barrier is, how am I going to answer this deluge of questions? from my clients. And we help with that by being a relationship that they can call on. And so that's the core focus. And then we serve about 2000 high net worth individuals, family offices. And then there are people who can buy shares in brokerage accounts as well. And I should mention that we have about 25 institutional clients today. So put that all together. And I think the common theme is that they're traditional investors. They have a, a high expectation. Their expectation is an equities expectation for what's acceptable risk. And they're busy. And they care and they want to know the detail, but they don't have all day, all week to absorb detail. Say a bit more then about how advisors are using crypto with their customers. So I'm curious here, maybe two big things. One is just, let's say for an advisor that uses Bitwise at LPL or wherever, what percent of their clients are they using it for? And for clients that use it, what percent of their portfolios does crypto represent? This look through feels really important to understand how this is starting to bridge into traditional advisory world? We see 1% to 3% across a swath of clients is usually where things go. Sometimes they start with, I have this one client who really wants some exposure and I need to figure out how to get that done for them. Or I think that we should be doing crypto and let's start by bringing it to a few of our clients who we know like these types of things and so the journey is not always the same, but it trends towards and often ends up at 1% to 3% today. That's crept up over time and across a wide set of the client base. And that 1% to 3% is percent of the client base or percent of their portfolios or both? Of the portfolios. Got it. Understood. Do you think that that will rise a lot? It's both like the party line. It's the safest possible recommendation to make that it's like a tiny percent, you know, you lose it all, who cares? You don't miss out on the 50 or 100x or whatever. It starts to feel kind of like lazy thinking to me. What's your take on that allocation, whether or not that's appropriate? Do you try to push for that to be higher in the advisor relationships you've developed? So we've done analysis, it's available on our website, others have done analysis, and they show that based on the data we do have about the historical performance, 
up to about, I think it's somewhere in the three to 5% range, it's additive to the Sharpe ratio of a portfolio. So because of the lack of correlation, even though it's volatile, it's volatile at different moments in time than your equities or fixed income allocation. And so if you want to look at it quantitatively, you can see something in that single digit up to 5% range, of course, depending on whatever the asset allocation is, as additive, reducing max drawdown, improving the Sharpe ratio. That's one way of approaching it. Another way of approaching it is, as you said, at 1%, we could lose 70% of the money and it wouldn't be the worst thing that happened. But if it 10x is, it'll really be a boon for the portfolio. And I think that's maybe the most common sort of gut check heuristic that people use. And then you get people dialing in between that 1% up close to the 5%. When you see things that are in the 10 to 30% range, it really tends to be principle-driven, individual-driven, somebody who's extremely passionate, philosophically connected, or just wants to take a big concentrated bet on it. But that is a lot less common with the advisor audience. Some of the high net worth individuals are more oriented towards that. So luckily, I benefit from being in a similar business, meaning that we principally face advisors and we're also trying to convince them to do something that's new and different. In our case, it's still equity. So it's probably easier than crypto, which is a whole new thing. But I understand the challenges of distribution to advisors. A lot of venture investors won't back companies that require RIA or advisor distribution because it's just very hard. Everyone wants them. They're the best looking person at every dance because they control access to huge amounts of assets and are sort of a distribution lever. So what have you learned about selling to RIAs? What messages, what marketing strategies, what activity or behavior on your part has been most effective to cost efficiently acquire the customer, in this case, the RIA? I think that we've had maybe three learnings over time in the Bitwise journey. One is you have to turn over a lot of stones. There's sort of these clever heuristics that we had, like maybe it's the investors who own gold that will be the most interested in crypto. Maybe it's the ones who are involved with tech stocks and and high growth will be the most interested. What we found, maybe the 38-year-old advisor versus the 58-year-old advisor. It has been all over the place. And so what we found is we just have to run a process and build a pipeline. And we are constantly surprised by who's most engaged. So that was lesson number one is being too clever, too academic about it, at least in our experience, was not the best approach. The second is they really care about the relationship. We sort of got into this a few minutes ago, but I think for many of our clients, they care about the relationship with Bitwise as much as they care about any detail, the custodian, the eligibility criteria. They're thinking, this is a professionally managed portfolio. Great. When I take an allocation, what happens next? What happens when my client emails me about China banning Bitcoin mining? What happens when my client emails me and says, why do we own Ethereum? We should own Solana. What happens when a client emails and says, I want you to talk to my son. He's really excited about NFTs. For an advisor, they're incredibly busy. They have 99% of the rest of the portfolio to think about. Think about their equities exposure, their fixed income, their cash position, et cetera. And they want to make sure that they're doing right by their client and that they're going to be successful with this investment. And that means... Are they going to have backup from a specialist who can make sure that they have answers to questions and know what's going on? So that I think is a huge part of the value prop and something we found is very important to them. We were 13 people in January, which I realize is tiny. We're still relatively small. We're 42 people now and 15 are relationship managers, wholesalers. So it's a huge part of what we do. And then we have another five that are on the research team and are often supporting those. That's half the firm right there. I sometimes joke that we're an education company that happens to have index funds. And then the third is that for many of them, they're going to decide at random times that it's the right time. And just being available for when that time comes 
is I think what we've seen as the most common answer versus trying to convince them that now's the right time. We don't do that so much. We try to say, here's what the opportunity set looks like today. Here are the different things you can have access to through us. We're happy to explain anything. But then most of them end up deciding when the right time is for a variety, a huge variety of reasons. Yeah, it's really a great section of the conversation because I think it actually harkens back to some of my other questions about prices, AUM fees that you charge, the jobs being done. And I like the idea of being an education company with index funds attached. It seems like the job being done for a lot of your customers is to be the safe on-ramp where it's not just an on-ramp, but it's an ongoing support structure and service. Trying to ban mining, like what the hell does this mean? It's much different than equities. It's such a more mature asset class. Like there's more existential type risks and strange stuff that's hard to understand. So a big part of your company's job and therefore your cost center and everything else that affects your margin is like the handholding that comes with investing in something new. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other things that unless crypto is going to really change, I mean, we foresee crypto as always being this novel alternative that lives in the one to 10% range. We don't think equities are going away. We don't think fixed income is going away. We don't think other asset classes are going away, real estate. And that means that it's always going to be a strain on investors to grapple the idiosyncrasies of the space when they have to spend 90%, 99% of their time on the rest of the portfolio. And so we think that we can be really valuable by being a specialist that always has our eye on the ball. I'd love to talk a bit about competition now and the evolution of the index space in crypto specifically. If you use equities as a proxy, TAF or more of assets are indexed now, but of course it's very different. The concentration at the top is nowhere close to what we see in crypto with Bitcoin and Ether. So it seems to me like the things that will drive index market share up as a percent of total crypto asset value is the concentration at the top. Are there more assets and the value more evenly spread around? So I'm curious if you agree there. And then also just to hear like, why aren't there more Bitwise competitors? There don't seem to be many. It seems like an obvious model to borrow from the old world and apply to the new. Why isn't there stiffer, more plentiful competition? I think today, indexing is one of the smaller parts of the crypto space. Coinbase is massive. People, enthusiasts, pros, or hobbyists wanting to trade the portfolio themselves is probably the most popular, followed by venture capital funds and other active managers who are actively trading portfolios themselves. So I think that because the space is so nascent, and also because there's a lot of volatility, people want to trade it. So I think those are the most popular strategies today. In terms of why we haven't seen more doing it in the index space, I think it's hard and it's not the most lucrative thing you could do. The most lucrative thing you could do is start a $50 million actively managed crypto fund with a 20% performance fee. And the same beliefs that lead you to starting a crypto index fund company are the beliefs that would lead you to believe that starting a $50 million crypto hedge fund with a 20% performance fee is going to pay off and put you into a nice place in the future. So I think that we've seen a ton of that. I don't know what the latest numbers are, but you remember in 2018 when the joke was that there were something like 200 crypto hedge funds. And so we've certainly seen people trying to do a more general version of what we do, which is manage portfolios on behalf of other investors. Using the index strategy has been less common. And then as you mentioned earlier, I think it takes patience. We're building a corporation and we have processes, we have a distribution organization, we produce research, and that takes time. So I think others have seen opportunities that have been more attractive and have jumped on those. You mentioned earlier the nascent NFT space and some of the other very early sections of the crypto ecosystem. What in your mind, like if you had to guess the next you know, five Bitwise products that become index worthy in some sense, what's your guess? I'm always thinking about this. In terms of sectors, I think that there's a few that have my attention. 
One is the operating systems. So the Ethereum competitors, the layer ones, the smart contracting platforms, the decentralized blockchain as a service. There's so many different terms for it that I haven't quite landed on which term I think is the most widely understood. But there are real interesting developments there. I think Solana is the most recent one to captivate people. And there are reasons why you could believe that instead of just using Windows, we'll end up in a space that uses Windows and Mac OS and Android and maybe a few others where some trade-offs are being made that are conducive to certain use cases. DeFi, I think, is here to stay. We have a product there. NFTs are incredibly exciting and an area of opportunity that a lot of people want to access. I haven't quite figured out the right way to think about that opportunity set and what might be most appropriate for investors. Do you offer a CryptoPunks index? For collectors, do you offer an index of the infrastructure that these things are being built on, like Ethereum and Flow and Polygon? Do you offer an index of the top five or 10 NFT collections? So CryptoPunks and Bored Apes and Art Blocks. So I don't have the answer on that. I think DAOs are interesting, but very early. And then I think that there's the sort of middle layer of Web3, things like Chainlink that close some of the gaps and allow people to build on what's kind of being described as Web3 in the same way they might build just on the internet, where they have access to open source projects and APIs. That's sort of the, the current set of themes that are on my mind, but they're also evolving. Just to pull into one more specifically, a way that we think about DeFi is the iPhone was a new computing platform that introduced new capabilities. The iPhone has an onboard camera, it has a GPS, it has an accelerometer, and so relative to the desktop as a computing environment, developers looked at the iPhone and said, could we reimagine some of the applications on the desktop that leverage some of these new unique capabilities? And we got Google Maps instead of MapQuest. And then we got some brand new things. We got Snapchat, which uses the onboard camera. You get Uber, which uses the GPS and the fact that you can take it outside. You get WhatsApp, which takes advantage of the fact you're going anywhere. What does that have to do with DeFi? I think DeFi has a parallel, which is public blockchains like Ethereum, the sort of operating system blockchains that I referred to have some new capabilities and developers are saying, how can we reimagine some basic financial services, leveraging these new capabilities? And of course, we see things today like brokerage, high yield deposits, loans, insurance, prediction markets. And I think that that is incredibly interesting because it can serve a long tail. It can serve the, the things that NASDAQ and NICE don't want to facilitate exchange around. It could serve an insurance policy. It could be written for a $6,000 risk on one of the insurance platforms. You could use something as collateral on Aave that you wouldn't normally be able to use as collateral with a traditional financial institution. So I think there's a lot there that is both early, but also very promising so far. Let's just say we're two years down the line. There's six more categories, all index worthy. You've continued to execute your strategy. And because the market's growing, there's five new crypto index providers, right? The landscape heats up. What do you think will be the competitive frontiers for winning in this sub-industry? So if we think of crypto index as its own category that you sort of ushered in, what do you think that battlefields will be for your firm versus others, or just what will drive who wins and who loses in this space? We think that there will be others. BlackRock is not the only firm managing public equities. Blackstone is not the only firm managing alternatives. We think of ourselves as a leader. We're not going to be the only ones. That's great. What will distinguish us as a leader? I think it's having large products with track records that serve the opportunities that people want to access. So staying in front of those opportunities and making them available and having a vibrant suite that's large and has good track records. And then the second is those things that we were talking about a little while ago, which is 
building the trust, the relationship, and being a provider that people think of as a partner more than just a manufacturer of products. And indeed, we create products in response to people saying, I, you know, I'd like to participate in what's going on in this corner of the market. Can you help us think about getting access there? I think that'll also take us beyond indexing. And I think that we'll have products in the future that aren't indexed products. Zooming way back out again, as we did a bit earlier, we think of the space as having a huge arc and of our role in it as being to bring the opportunities emerging here to traditional investors. And that can take many different forms. If you had to distill down a major lesson learned to share with other operators out there building Bitwise thus far relative to your expectations coming in, what would that big lesson be? I think maybe the most interesting would be a crypto lesson. And I think that the crypto lesson for somebody who's building a company in the crypto space is be consistent and be present because the space is evolving and the space is bigger than any one company. And you just have to continue to be at the table and continue to show up. And the market goes in one direction or another. No one expected it to be NFT summer in August. Nobody expected DeFi summer last year. And so I think sometimes when people have overly prescriptive visions about what they expect at certain points in time, they may not participate in the spaces as optimally. So a piece of advice I give to people operating in the crypto space is be consistent, be present. The space is going to do what it's going to do. And you need to be present in each of those moments. Wantra, I always like meeting people building first in category companies. I think that's kind of the best way to build a business. And it's been fun learning about how Bitwise has developed since that first meeting many years ago. Great to see you again. And thanks so much for your time. 100%. This is a lot of fun, Patrick. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 